This is the Moral Science Podcast, and I'm your host, Amber Cazell. In this series, I get to interview experts in my favorite subject, the scientific study of human morality, virtues and vices, evolution of morals, the judgment action gap, character development, the philosophy of morality, transcendent experiences, researchers' moral biases, cultural values, plus the obligatory trolley dilemma. We are gonna talk about it all. Dr. Tej Rai is the Associate Editor for Social Sciences at Science Magazine and is a Research Associate at MIT Sloan School of Management. His research focuses on moral conflict, violence, and personhood and has been published in top academic journals including Nature, The Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, and Psychological Review, as well as a trade book titled Virtuous Violence, which was published in 2014. In this podcast, we discuss his work with Alan Fisk to develop the relationship regulation theory of morality, a theory that moral judgments and actions stem from our desire to maintain certain types of relationship categories. So I grew up in central Florida. Um, you know, it was kind of southern. It wasn't uh, the best education, maybe. Uh, and so in a lot of ways, like when I was, you know, growing up again in college, I felt like, man, I was kind of like at a disadvantage. But then, you know, as I started to get more into psychology, it was kind of like this really weird thing where you would hit these theories and you would talk to psychologists even, and it was kind of like they were really bending over backwards to kind of explain the differences between people and differences between values and stuff by saying, oh, well, actually, you know, those conservatives really agree with us. They're just mistaken about something, you know? Mm -hmm. They just have mistaken information in some way. And as opposed to a much more simpler explanation that actually there might be competing values. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, and then when I was in college, I read, I read this book uh, called Culture of Honor by, Nisbet and uh, Dove Cohen. And that book was all about kind of where I came from and these uh, cultural norms related to honor and how Southerners were like more quick to respond with violence and stuff, uh, to insults and, and things like that. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, some of that work has held up, some of it hasn't, but like it, it really kind of like got me into to this space of, of thinking. And then when I went to grad school, what I was actually interested in studying was sort of cognitive science of religion. Um, but then, you know, as I started getting more into it, it, it became clear that, you know, like so much of religion really is morality. And that was right around the time that um, moral foundations theory was picking up and, and that was sort of becoming a hot area. And again, my advisor was an anthropologist, and so I was dealing a lot with kind of disagreements across cultures. And that was really what I was, really, was especially interested in. You know, how can it be that you have the exact same action, but uh, you know, Western liberals think it's absolutely abhorrent and condemn it, and then another group of people don't just accept it, they actually think it's like praiseworthy, that's the right thing to do, and that if you didn't do it, that would be wrong. You know, some horrific act of violence. Uh, and, you know, when you started going through the literature, so much of it really pushed this idea that, oh, well, actually, there are universal um, preferences, right? This was really popular in the moral education literature, especially. Mm -hmm. 
and and to the extent that there's disagreements over equality or uh, violence or anything like that, that's really that's really about social biases that are sort of interfering with your moral sense in some way. Could you could you explain a little bit of what you mean by uh, like the bias piece, like an example? Yeah. So, um, you know, I let's say you have a classic line of work in uh, the moral development literature would be work by Elie Turiel, and that work might say, "Hey, look, you know, everybody." has kind of universal uh, aversions to harm. So they don't want to harm other people. They, they disapprove of intentionally doing it. Uh, they're really concerned with rights and justice as well, which concretely ends up transforming into something like equality uh, mm -hmm. for all people. Then when you're faced with something like massive gender inequality within a culture, uh, you're faced with this question of, well, well how does that happen? Uh, people seem to believe it's the right thing to do. And the solution that was generally put up at that time, uh, and that's still popular, is to say, oh, well, people's sense of morality is that they value nonviolence and is that they value equality, but certain kinds of social biases creep into cultural institutions and their power dynamics and historical determinants that then uh, overpower your kind of... Uh, moral intuitions or something thus so like inequality okay so like in the in the turiel nucci's matana kind of tradition you're saying that they would consider conventions um an amoral aspect of life that biases the moral realm yes absolutely so, okay. so you know in the same way that they, you know they would say that oh well if you're doing something because an authority told you to do it you're obeying an authority, that, that doesn't really count if you're as moral. That's a social convention. Okay. If you're doing it because you internally believe it's the right thing to do or something, that counts as a moral uh, belief or moral intuition. Okay. Now that sort of believing in practice actually cut off a lot of the morality literature from the rest of social psychology. Mm. And, and so there were people like me and others who kind of felt like, oh, well, we need to actually bring morality back into social psychology back, you know, and that maybe this cleaving between, you know, moral psych and, and social convention and stuff isn't, is, is sort of an artificial one. Mm -hmm. And that maybe a lot of the moral diversity we see in the world isn't sort of a mistake. It's not, it's not just like a, a kind of difference in information or something like that. Maybe it's that actually people have really competing values. Mm. And then we need to figure out what those values are. Yeah. Um, and so just to reiterate, it sounds like you're saying, well, cross-cultural differences in morality in sort of the Turiel tradition have been relegated to a classification that simply calls them amoral rather than recognizing that these might represent truly moral cross-cultural differences. Yeah, absolutely. So, so okay. you know, the, another way to think about this is in the sort of like height moral foundations type approach, 
you know, right. what you would say is that, oh, the, the classic view only counts harms and rights, or, or in his model, like harms and equality or fairness as moral. And then the other stuff, uh, moral judgments that have to do with obeying authority or supporting your in-groups or, you know, pure impure actions, that stuff's not actually moral. In spite of the fact that all the people in these cultures really seem to talk about them in moral terms. Wait, so, so um, just if we could back up for just a minute, sure. could you paint sort of the, the, the social behind the scenes structure of what's going on? Because my understanding, and, and please correct me if I'm wrong about any of these branches, is that your, your sort of um, doctoral dissertation chair was Alan Fisk, is that right? Yes. Okay, and then Alan Fisk and both, John, both Jonathan Haidt and Alan Fisk were students of Richard Schwader. Is that correct or am I wrong about Alan Fisk? That is correct. And then John Haidt was uh, actually a student of Alan Fisk. And then John oh. Haidt did a postdoc with Richard Schwader. Okay, fascinating. <laughs> okay, this is why it's always, it's always fun for me to learn because it's, it's kind of neat to see how researchers have influenced each other. So it, even though Jonathan Haidt was a postdoc of Richard Schwader, you're saying that he's, it, it sounded to me like you're implying that Jonathan Haidt is, a, is less morally pluralistic than, um, than like you would consider yourself to be, but maybe that's not correct. Maybe that's not uh, fair. No, I think, I think he's, probably less pluralistic than I am, but uh, you know, if we take the full space of moral psychology research and you know, cut it in half, the, I think to a non-specialist, you know, the, the differences between like the relationship regulation people and the moral foundations people are kind of small potatoes compared to the difference between like us and you know the the domain theory folks or the harm hypothesis folks or or or, or things okay. like that. So, so could you tell yeah. me a bit more about um you're saying that jonathan Haidt seems to think of morality as a matter of harm care but when i interpret when i look at moral foundations theory i think of him as as trying to say like no purity and authority hierarchy these things are actually moral foundations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, sorry, that's a miscommunication on my part. I was saying that he does think of all that stuff as moral. Okay. The Furiel folks uh, would have only counted the harm and fairness. Okay, I see. So much, I see. Of, much of John's work was really saying like, hey, look, you know, we've been only counting two of these foundations and then everything else we've been saying, that's actually non-moral bias or amoral or something. Okay, actually, okay. In fact, that stuff should be included too. And okay. so I was saying like, you know, his stuff was really picking up, right? When I was kind of like getting into this. And, and, and so we, you know, I, in the world of, of people who do this sort of work, especially when you're looking across cultures, I think you look at the disagreement and, I, and one camp would say, oh, those disagreements are sort of uh, ephemeral. They're, they're, kind of, they're kind of accidental. They don't reflect actual moral uh, differences. Mm. Um, and that's true whether you're a kind of a domain person, whether you're like a harm hypothesis person, whether you're like a universal moral grammar person. 
Um, but then there's like the other camp that are people like me and the relationship regulation folks and the uh, universal moral grammar folks, or not universal, uh, sorry, the moral foundations folks who say, no, no, there's all this moral diversity that actually is moral. It's just okay. stuff that we can't categorize as harm and fairness. Okay. So now as, as this is all, as Jonathan Haidt's work is kind of unfolding and popularizing, um, you tell me about how you moved from kind of looking at what's going on with his work into creating sort of this relationship regulation theory. Yeah, so the, the key differences were, you know, that the, in the end, even, even his theory and that kind of work is really still about content. So the claim is that really morality is about actions. You know, some actions are fair, some actions are unfair. Some actions cause harm, some actions don't. Some actions defy authorities, some actions go against in-groups, whatever. Uh, and, and, and in some cases that really fits with me, like things like going against in-groups, going against authorities or, or supporting them. In other cases, like some, some actions are pure or impure. Those are, the way he does it is really cast as non-relational. Mm. And, you know, what I really wanted to argue is that actually, you know, if we really step back and think about, well, why would our sense of morality evolve in the first place? It really shouldn't evolve to be about particular kinds of actions. It should be the case that actually, you know, any given action could be moral or immoral. And what really matters is the social context and especially the, the social relational context. And so then the question of figuring out the sort of bases of morality isn't about figuring out, well, what are the sort of kinds of content that matter? Instead, it's about figuring out, well, what are the kinds of relationships that matter? And what are the sort of fundamental relations that people engage in across the world? And then what are the sort of moral motives within those relations that are really driving them? And so that, that gets you to a very different place. Um, then, you know, all the morality is about kind of, kind of things like, you know, how are you supporting your group or how are you supporting authority or how are you supporting these kind of other kinds of like more market-based relations or quality-based relations and any particular action might be good or bad. Yeah. Yeah. So just taking a more, yeah, relationship-centric approach to morality. Um, so can you, let's go ahead and talk about those various relationships because this is something that's new to me and maybe I'm just naive, but um, hopefully other people will, um, find discussion of those relationships valuable. So what are kind of those four styles of relationships? Sure, so I should start by saying, you know, you can have a kind of relationship regulation view that basically morality is, is really more about social relational context and not about particular kinds of actions like harms or parents or something without adhering to uh, relational models theory, which would be like the, the the thing that sets out the four kinds of relations. So you could have a different kind of taxonomy, right? So, you know, um, I use this one because I thought it was the best. But you know, if it's um, if you were someone like Margaret Clark or something, you would say there's only two kinds of relations. There's 
communal relations and exchange relations. Or if you were somebody else, you might say there's like five kinds of relations or whatever. Um, okay. Whichever one of those you choose, like, is sort of secondary to the to the bigger issue of whether it's about relationships. But in order to get any traction on this idea, you have to use some sort of uh, taxonomy of relations. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you wouldn't be able to move forward. And so I use this work called relational models. This is how I ended up working with Alan Fisk because uh, he's an anthropologist uh, and I'm actually like a cognitive psychologist. But I started working with him because, I, because we had this intersection. And, um, and so he had developed this work based on a lot of ethnographic work, this theory of, of how people relate everywhere. Mm. And the claim was that they tend to relate in one of four ways that usually it's not always pure. Like you can connect with the same person in lots of different ways, um, but, but it's going to fall on one of these four modes. So the first one is called communal sharing. And uh, this is a kind of relationship in which you kind of really, it's about a sense of oneness with the other person that you're in the, that you're in the same group. And, and the sort of, you know, and then the second kind of re relational model would be something like authority ranking. And so this gets at hierarchies uh, where some people are above other people. The third kind of relational model would be equality matching. And so this is really about relating with people through, through a sense that we're, we're different, but we're, we're equals. And so we take turns and, we, you know, we, we make sure everybody gets the same amount, mm -hmm. that kind of thing. And then the fourth was... Um, called market pricing. And this is sort of how you interact uh, in markets with strangers often, but not always, where you have to take lots of different goods and sort of equate them on a common metric. So, so the, the most clear example of that is, is when you're buying and selling things and you have very different goods, but you, you're agreeing to this common metric of money and that's how you're going to do it. But it also expands to anything like if you're trying to figure out, well, what's the most equitable kind of outcome or who, who has the most merit to get some particular resource, those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. Anytime you're dealing with that sort of justice where it's about kind of trading off stuff that's not in the same kind of like one for one of equality, then, then you're in this sort of market-based relationship. Okay. And so then, you know, my relationship regulation work was saying, okay, well, this is a really great taxonomy for the fundamental relations in the world. What are the kind of motivating um, uh, moralities within these kinds of ways of relating? Yeah. And so, and, and there, you know, the argument was that, well, when you're in communal sharing, what's most important is to maintain a kind of sense of unity that, oh, you know, we're, you know, we're, we're, you know, this kind of like loyalty to each other overall else we're, 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 we speak the same voice. We have the same message. We're one person. Kind of thing. Mm. Uh, in authority ranking, it was really about hierarchy that, um, you know, subordinates have to defer to superiors, but superiors have to kind of take responsibility for subordinates. Again, this is a classic case. Both of those are where these are sorts of things. Like if you supported your in-group or if you did something because a superior told you to, uh, all you know, more traditional theories in moral psychology would not have coded that stuff as more. Mm. It would have coded that as like, well, that's not real morality. Real morality means you have to think it's true 
independent of what other people think. Mm -hmm. uh, and you have to like do it independent of somebody telling you to do it. And whereas I was arguing that, no, no, that, that actually those are really the core parts of a lot of morality is, you know, the stuff people do because of the sort of social connections they have within their groups and the sort of social relational obligations they feel that's, that's really the bulk of a lot of morality. Mm -hmm. um, you know, within equality matching, the moral modes were really about maintaining equality, doing, doing these things that, that kind of make sure everybody's, you know, level and, and nobody's above anybody else. And then within market pricing, the, the principal moral mode was this thing called, we called proportionality, which meant that, you know, um, the, the sort of outcomes need to be proportional to the, the outputs need to be proportional to the inputs. Um, you know, things need to be equitable, that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, let's dive into each of these, if, if you don't mind, um, and about how, cause, cause a lot of your work, it, it looks like is examining how these things can vary cross-culturally or even like just, you know, a lot of the political stuff you were mentioning earlier, um, potentially same, um, same overarching culture, but different subcultures. How, so how do these things, how do these moralities play out in different ways that would cause us, like you were saying, you know, the, we used to potentially write off and say, oh, well, that's not, that's just a non-moral issue, like biasing something, um, rather than recognizing and wrestling that these are in fact just different moralities. So for the communal sharing, you were saying that unity is kind of the driving force. Well, what does that look like and how does that play out in different cultures? Yeah, so, um, but, you know, I, th I think oftentimes we, when we're thinking about morality, we tend to think about, oh, these like really big issues of like political issues and like, you know, huge conflicts and stuff like that. I actually think a lot of relationship regulation happens in like everyday moral situations, you know? Mm -hmm. So, you know, imagine you have, imagine you have a group of, a group of people who go out for dinner and they're splitting a pizza or something like that. Um, if, we're, if we're motivated by unity, then we're not going to track who takes how much. So everybody can just dig in, take however much they, they want or need, and we're not going to care who takes how much, and we're just going to kind of, everybody can actually pitch in however much they want in terms of paying. If instead we're kind of doing this through um, hierarchy, uh, then what's going to happen is the people who are sort of highest in the ranking are going to get first dibs at, at, the, at the pizza, or they're going to get to kind of determine who gets what, and they're also maybe going to take responsibility for paying. Mm -hmm. If instead we're doing things by equality, then we're going to make sure we each take the exact same amount of pizza, and then we're going to make sure that we each like put in the exact same amount of money. If we're doing things through proportionality, we're going to say, well, you know, uh, uh, Tage is like bigger than Amber, so he should get a little more pizza, but he should also probably put in an amount of money commensurate with the amount of pizza that he took or something. Okay. Does that make sense? Yes. And, and then what happens, what I think is really interesting is 
when you get moral disagreements. So some, one person is using an authority model and another person is using kind of an equality model or something. You see this a lot where, you know, an older person or like a parent of somebody is like, no, no, I want to pay the whole check or whatever. I'm whatever. And then the other people are like, no, no, let's share it equally. And then you get conflict. Yeah. And I think those sorts of everyday kind of disagreements happen all the time. And so often, you know, it's, it's not that anybody had mistaken information or didn't know exactly what's going on. It's that they disagree about what the appropriate sort of social relational model is to use. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I still want to, I, I want to dive into a couple of different things. Uh, I'm really interested in your thoughts on like why people have disagreements about the proper social role, why that happens so frequently. And then, potentially also like cross-culturally while that why that happens seemingly systematically um but i still kind of want to get a feel for maybe some more just like practical tangible examples of each of these things so like um with unity you had spoken about how that could cause yeah like moral moral strife not just um like, I, I thought it was particularly interesting, this idea that unifying the group also meant kind of separation from other groups and what that meant as far as kind of the relationships between virtues and vices in this paradigm. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I'd have to think about what, how we want to define like virtues and vices here, but, you know, unity is this example so a lot of the work i've done in the last few years is really tied more to kind of violence and harm that people do to each other and yeah. you know a lot of that is really you know oftentimes a lot of violence is if it's in an intergroup context it's saying well they're the other and i'm hurting them because they're different and we're our group and they pose some sort of threat to our group and mm -hmm. And oftentimes that threat is a sort of contamination threat to the group's unity. That the, the sort of what matters is maintaining that group essence. And if some other group is perceived as posing a threat to that essence, something that could like cause differentiation within the group, then that means that they, they need to be, that needs to be eliminated and possibly through harm. This can actually happen in the intra-group context if a member of the group has essentially become polluted or contaminated somehow then they may need to be excised from the group and so this is what we see in a lot of uh a lot of cases like i think in the paper we use the honor killing case where if you look at those ethnographies uh, all of the language is really about this kind of idea that like it's not the case that these families necessarily uh you know, hate their daughters or something like that after they've been raped or something. Instead, they have lots of conflicted emotions about this, which I think reflect the conflicting kind of motives that are at play and the conflicting kind of group boundaries. And oftentimes it's really difficult, but there's a sense that, well, it's something that has to be done in order to sort of repair the essence within the family and also repair the sort of uh, unity between the family and the rest of the community. Yeah. So, and are you like when, when people in who are 
dealing with these kinds of things have these conflicting emotions, is there, is the source of that conflict from your theory, just simply the, the mix of social relations? Yes, I think, I think the, our theory would predict that basically when you see the most conflict, it has to do with sort of the extent to which different models have been sort of what, what the term would be like constituted or constituted. And um, basically that just means the, the, how, how strong those sort of motives are, like how, how, much are, how much are you really being pulled by these different kinds of social relational obligations. And you get a lot of conflict when you have different models that are equally sort of strong. You see this a lot when it's like, oh, well, you know, um, I think something would be, you know, I have an obligation to an authority to sort of uh, report or do some, do, you know, punish a transgression, but the transgression was done by, you know, someone in my family or somebody who's very deeply tied to like my in-group, somebody I have a strong sense of unity with, then you've got this clash. Hmm. Yeah. So where, if it's okay, I, I do want to kind of dive into this idea of like, well, how do we start to make meaning of our various social relations and start to classify them as like, okay, well, this is, this is a communal sharing relationship. This is a hierarchy relationship. I mean, that's probably a tough question and it, it might be, it's probably outside the scope of your normal research, but do you have a hunch as far as like where these classifications are, are coming from? Yeah, so I, I think, I think that what, you know, if we want to say, well, why is it that there's, you know, so, so I should preface by saying again, like any two people can sort of engage in all the models with each other. It's more about the sort of relative amount that they're doing. And they may be doing a lot of communal sharing or they may be doing a lot of market pricing or something. And then when you look across cultures, again, it's this like relative amount. You're gonna find all four models in these places, but some cultures are gonna be doing a lot more communal sharing and authority ranking than other cultures that are maybe doing more quality matching market pricing. Or something. And I think that, you know, my own intuition is that a lot of this really comes down to sort of, um, uh, social ecological factors within these communities that sort of make uh, these different ways of relating make more or less sense. So, so I tend to think of these relational models, these ways of relating as sort of strategies for navigating social relationships and different strategies are going to be more effective or make more sense in different contexts. Uh, so, you know, you could imagine that, well, let's go back to our pizza example. Uh, it, it maybe in a world before sort of calculators or something like that, it just kind of makes, it, it's just easier to just kind of say, okay, you have half the pizza and I have half the pizza and I'll put in half the money and you put in half the money or something. Mm -hmm. Once we actually have calculators, now we actually have the ability to really quickly figure out, well, if you took you know, three eighths of the pizza and I took five eighths of the pizza, then how much money, how much is five eighths of the money or something like that. So changes in the environment and the technology or whatever are going to make different ways of relating uh, more viable. 
you know? Mm. Yeah. Uh, similarly, you might think that um, communal sharing, this idea that we're all one, we're all kind of pitching in and we're all sort of need-based and here for each other or something like that. Maybe that's like a really good form of social insurance, right? So like if the, if the world is unpredictable and you kind of need to stay above a certain threshold in order to make it, then actually it's kind of like risk pooling and this is, this is really useful. But maybe that actually changes as the population size changes. So maybe when there's more people and you're having to interact with more people across more contexts, it's actually like really hard to sort of maintain that. And mm -hmm. so maybe then it makes more sense to kind of shift to other kinds of models that are better equipped to handle larger groups or more dispersed groups, that kind of thing. So maybe if it really is a bunch of interactions in lots of different ways with people you're not going to see very often, then maybe communal sharing and unity isn't really the way to go. Maybe something like market pricing makes more sense. Yeah. And then I think you can kind of aggregate this up to the differences across cultures where you might see more communal sharing, more authority ranking, kind of small scale societies, and then more kind of quality matching and market pricing as you get into bigger, more dispersed places. Yeah. So what are some of the biggest criticisms of the theory that you've heard? Um, so, you know, I think there, I'm trying to think how to put this. So, so the key, one of the key things is that there's always an issue about um, whether, I, I, what I would say is the key criticism is that it includes too much stuff as moral. Mm. So, you know, if you look at the work by, say, Kurt Gray, you know, he really wanted to establish that a ton of the stuff that I'm calling moral really just isn't. That actually morality is really all about harm uh, and the perception of harm. And that harm is sort of based in this template where intentionally harming another person uh, is, is bad. Whereas my work would say, actually, you know, sometimes harm is perceived as morally wrong. Sometimes harm is perceived as morally right. The exact same kind of action is going to have a different interpretation depending on the social context. And those different interpretations aren't more or less correct than each other. Yeah. So what about um, Jonathan Haidt? I saw in the acknowledgments on your paper that he had done some reviews of it. So what were some of his, his thoughts since this, since your theory in some ways expands on his and in other ways is critical of it? Um, he was, I, you know, he, I, I, my recollection is he gave a very gracious review. And I think in the paper, there were many times when I said something like, morality is relationship regulation or something. And his only request was that I say something like, the core of morality is relationship regulation. You know? um, so he was, he was pretty much okay with most of it. He just felt that, especially when it comes to purity, that maybe you know, the theory doesn't capture enough. That, 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 that there are going to be certain kinds of morality that aren't relational. So if, if I personally think 
that smoking is wrong or something, and it's because I have this visceral feeling of disgust, that that is a, is a one-person thing, that that's not about the social group, um, and that that's going to be true for a lot of the impurity sorts of things. Uh, yes? Oh, just I, I'm curious what your thoughts about that comment of his are. Um, because I, when I was reading through your paper, I was also thinking about, I, I was trying to imagine what Jonathan Haidt might be thinking about it and thought like, I, how does this work with like his, his um, edge cases, like sex with a dead chicken and yes. stuff like that? that that's the kind of, those are the kind of things where he felt like our theory doesn't get there because he'd say that, that there's not like a relationship with the dead chicken or something. You know, I, my attitude tended to be, and it still is, that actually a lot of those things the violation really is relational. So for example, you know, the classic kind of MFT case would be something like, oh, you know, is it, is it uh, you know, I think the original title of that first paper was something like, is it morally wrong to, to eat your dog or something? Yeah. <laughs> and code this as a, as a purity violation. And that people think, yes, it's, it's you know, morally eat your dog. And I was sitting there like, well, yeah, because it's your dog. Like that. <laughs> The, the wrongness of it isn't eating a dog. The wrongness of it is that it's your dog. It's part of the family. Yeah. So, so the violation is a relational violation. And even if we say, you know, even if we look cross-culturally at like places where they think dog eating is wrong, morally wrong kind of in the abstract sense, the places that say that are places where dogs are kept as family pets. And right. so, you know, in the places where dogs aren't kept as family pets, nobody thinks it's immoral to eat dogs. Mm -hmm. So, you know, with all these sort of purity things, I tend to think like, oh, well, we're acting as if these are sort of social relational context free. It's like nobody has a problem with that. Like incest is another canonical case, right? So the, the classic kind of Julian Mark, you know, are brother and sister and they're having incest or something. They're, they're having sex, but nobody's going to know about it. And they use condoms or whatever. Uh, Again, what's wrong about that is not two people having sex. What's wrong about it is that they're brother and sister. The relationship is, is core to the violation. Right. Yeah. And, you know, whether incest is good or bad across cultures, you know, depends on what sort of relationships have been categorized as too close or not. In some places, sex between first cousins would be incest. In other places, it's not. Again, the act is the same in all those places. It's, it's the relationship and how it's been construed that's different. Yeah. Yeah, this is, I mean, it's, it's really interesting stuff. And um, it makes intuitive sense to me that, yeah, morality is about, about managing our relationships. And there might be lots of different ways that that occurs. Um, what are your thoughts about how, about a lot of the moral automaticity, automaticity um, research, like the fact that people have a reaction to the idea of having sex with a dead chicken is interesting because it's not like, it's not like that's a dilemma that they have regular practice with, but people seem to have these intuitive reactions to it. Um, so where do you kind of fall on this automaticity issue? So, you know, I, I think some of that is sort of, 
orthogonal to kind of the things we did. So the way I interpret a lot of that is, you know, um, there's this work on kind of typicality. So, and you were getting at this, like, well, some of these things are just really weird. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, my impression of that is that you can have two different uh, moral transgressions. One is sex with a dead chicken. One, is, you know, and there's this, there's this, you know, paper by, um, uh, you know, David Tambom and Dave Pizarro and uh, Eric Ullman, I think, or, or Daniel Dumont, somebody like that that gets at this. Uh, and in that paper, what they have is is something like you, you know, the person either hurts the a cat, like they either beat a cat or they beat their partner. Okay. Mm -hmm. And, and they show this thing like, well, it's worse to beat your partner, but actually people have worse judgments about the person that beats their cat. And, um, and similarly, like in the example, you know, like, like you can imagine that, okay, it's, it's worse to assault another person than it is to have sex with a dead chicken. Uh, but maybe I actually draw worse inferences about the person who has sex with a dead chicken than I do about the person who assaults someone else. And the reason is because a lot of morality, a lot of moral judgment, I think, isn't really about evaluating actions. That's how we ask the questions, but they're really more about evaluating the person. And what I would say is they're really about evaluating that person's sort of social relational potential. So, so their potential for being in a relationship with me. I'm evaluating them as a relational partner. And the person who has sex with a dead chicken, because that's such an atypical event, because it's so rare, <laughs> I'm actually getting more inferential information out of that than the case where somebody assaults somebody or someone beats someone or someone gets into a fight. And it's like, yeah, maybe that's not as bad, but that person is a real, real psycho. I don't want to deal with that, you know, as a relational partner. Whereas, you know, actually, in fact, you know, my argument would be there are plenty of cases where I think that, um, that uh, you know, assault, I might perceive that as morally okay, depending on the context, right? That's going to be more rare for the sex with that chicken. Yeah. I don't think it's impossible. If I told you that, you know, if I told you that, well, you know, sex with a dead chicken is like a, you know, a hazing thing for this college fraternity or something, then you know, people might still not be into it, but maybe their moral judgments would be a little less like extreme. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I, I think you're probably right about that. That's my, that's my own kind of gut intuition. And it, it makes me, I've been doing some thinking about, um, about like that, that idea that, <clears throat> excuse me, that some, um, some behaviors give us what we feel like are more explanatory power for figuring out something about another person's character. So um, a buddy of mine who's a doctoral student at, at, here at Stanford, he and I were talking about um, this idea of moral strength and that there was a study done by, I think it was Starman's and Bloom that was looking at um, who adults prefer to reward? Do they prefer to reward children that do the right thing um, when it's really effortful, effortful for them to do? Or do they prefer to reward the child who does the right thing without being tempted in the first place? And um, it seems like adults prefer to award the kids who do the right thing, but effortfully. And, and um, the paper kind of went into some 
the philosophical background on that, like, okay, a uh, moral duty versus, you know, maybe a, a more of a virtuous practical wisdom kind of perspective on things, but, but it's interesting. And so I, my kind of intuition is like, we want to have moral automaticity to some degree. Like it would be great if we weren't being tempted by negative things. Um, but my buddy was kind of of the opposite mind, like, well, no, there should be like some effort involved in this. And, um, had talked about that idea of he used the words moral strength that somebody struggling through and then ultimately doing the right thing shows a type of moral strength and so that's actually preferable and that that's pretty interesting it's pretty interesting because I, I would have thought that you know automatic actions would provide some sort of consistency that you can rely on that person but that doesn't seem to be how most people think about it you know? Yeah, so I would think that it completely depends on the content because the content is going to affect what inference I make about the person. So if mm. if the question if if I say, you know, I just I really love cake, but I know it's bad for me, and I, you know I have to work really hard. It's so tempting, but I I didn't eat cake, you know. Uh, versus somebody who's like, yeah, I'm just not that into cake. And so, you know, it's easy for me not to do it. You're more impressed with the person who, um, who had to really fight that temptation. And you think that's really moral, morally good or something like that. And I think it's because it signals some, some positive aspect of self-control or something. In contrast, if I, if I said to you, God, I just really want to cheat on my wife all the time. I just want to cheat on her so much, but I just, I'm able to stop myself from having sex with other women, but it takes all my effort, but I do it. Versus the person who is kind of like, no, I just love my wife and I don't have any desire for anyone else. You like the second guy more, right? Well, I would intuitively think so, but honestly, I'm not sure. I'm not sure how, um, I mean, you would probably like the second guy better, but when you're assessing their... Well, I think, I think we would think that person's more moral because we would say actually they're more virtuous because the virtue isn't tied to the effort. The virtue is tied to having some inherent goodness in their preferences. Yeah. You know, I'll make it more extreme. You know, the person who says, I just really want to have sex with children. You know, yeah. I, just, I just want to all the time, but I, I fight that urge. Yeah. We, don't, we don't look at them as a moral compass. We yeah. think, oh, well, this is a disturbed individual. Even if they haven't acted on their temptations, even if they've done something that we normally think of as a good thing, which is resisting a temptation that is bad for them, we still say, no, 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 that's not somebody I want near my children. That's not somebody <laughs> right. that's good. Yeah. We would much prefer the person who just doesn't actually have the desire to have sex with children. And again, because I think what we're really trying to infer is who do I want to interact with in a particular context? Who do I want to be my, my social partner? Yeah. And, you know, in the cake example, it's like, yeah, I want the person who can resist things like cake. In the sex with children example, I don't want, I want the person who doesn't have that desire. <laughs> right. Um, that's, yeah, that's, these are all good points. So have you been doing work on any of that? It, like social inference stuff? So we did some stuff at one point. Um, 
there was some related work that so I have you know I have this like book chapter on some of this stuff about you know what what is really going on in sort of moral inference and what are we trying to figure out we ran some experiments that what you would predict is you know so the really interesting cases are cases where we don't care about things like intentions you know or we don't you know whether somebody did something on purpose or not uh, or you know and we did some studies that we never really finished up or we never decided to take further because there was some related work I think that came out from um, another lab uh, that was really about trying to predict when are intentions going to matter more or less and so on on the sort of relationship regulation view oh intentions are going to matter when they're actually have sort of diagnostic predictive validity for relationships and under the conditions where they don't then maybe it's not going to matter whether you did something on purpose so if if it turns out that yeah you did it by accident but it's just going to keep happening in the future because you don't actually have control over it intention your intentions may not matter as much if it turns out that you did it by accident but for other reasons, we don't see you as a viable relationship partner. So you're just low on things like warmth and competence or something. Um, then it's not really going to matter there either, whether you did on by accident or, or on purpose, because we don't have any intention of having a relationship with you in the first place. If something you did caused sort of irrevocable damage to the relationship, then in some sense, it doesn't really matter whether you did it on purpose or by accident. And this is where you get to something like an honor killing case, where it doesn't matter whether what the victim's intentions were or whether they had any control or anything like that. Mm -hmm. if, if the damage done to the relationship is that extensive and it can't be repaired, then the relationship has to end, even if, the person didn't have any intention or control over what they did. Yeah. So how, um, what is sort of your view on what is to be done as far as sort of multicultural exchanges um, when people are, are interacting with each other with such widely different social construals? Um, you know, I don't, I don't know whether there are sort of easy answers to that. I think the kind of, you know, because that sort of gets into a place of, well, what should be sort of your prescriptive ethics or something that we're willing to impose on other cultures? So when should we like go in to some place and tell them, actually, the way you're doing things is just too offensive to human rights or something, you have to do it differently. Um, at, at least, I mean, is that, I mean, that's how I interpret your question. Were you thinking of it a different way? Yeah, no, I mean, I mean, that's, that's a fine answer. I think it's a realistic answer of like, there are no answers here, well, but. No, I just mean, so, so in, in that context, what I would say is like, I think it's helpful to kind of have a sense of, well, what are the sort of intrinsic kind of motivations that are driving people? And that's what relationship regulation theory is really trying to get at. Yeah. And, you know, an argument I've made before is that 
sort of imbalance in any particular direction may be bad. So too much unity can be bad. Too much, you know, hierarchy can be bad. Too much uh, markets, proportionality stuff can be bad. And so really, we're, you're trying to find some sort of balance. And there's probably not going to be any sort of optimal balance, but there might be like a range of pretty, a pretty wide range of acceptable values. And only when a culture is like really falling, like really on the extreme and too far outside, then might you want to say, hey, they've shifted too far in one direction. You know, we should, we should be willing to take action here. Critically, the, you know, the, the sort of meta ethical implication of a lot of my work. So, so I was, you were asking me earlier about criticisms. Mm. I forgot the biggest criticism I get is from philosophers, which is, this, and oftentimes what are called moral realists, which is that they say, well, Tage, if we believe what you're saying, then nothing has any value anymore or something like that, that, uh, that there is no objective morality anymore. And I do think that we kind of, it would be good if we accepted that actually that, yeah, it is all subjective. And when we go into another place and tell them they have to do things differently, we are just imposing our values on them. And to the extent that there's anything real there or anything objective, it has to get to these like extremes I was talking about. That like, well, maybe there's a pretty broad swath of moral values and balancing among those values that is still going to lead to kind of meaningful sustainable life in different places and really only the extremes might actually fall outside of that hmm. but otherwise you know we're just kind of imposing our norms on other people yeah yeah that was starting to remind me of the conversation that i had with rick schwader um talking about you know universe there's certain universals but they're not they're not emphasized uniformly so um i i know rick schwader wouldn't consider himself like a, a moral relativist or subjectivist, but um, it sounds like you both are taking the approach that maybe there's sort of this, this uh, there are certain types of things that are fairly uniformly accepted. Um, you know, we have these four different relational styles that it's morally good to try to maintain, but outside of that, you know, there, there might be some things that are just fundamentally immoral. Well, so, okay. So Rick would say, insists that he's not a relativist, but like any, any other person would say this, right? But, or a subjectivist or whatever. Um, the reason is because he thinks there's some kind of like universal rules like consistency. So, you know, if I say, you know, X is X and then I act opposite to that, that would be wrong or something. But, but that's like, uh, yeah. For all, for all practical purposes, you would fall in the subjectivist, relativist camp, I think. And so would I. <laughs> um, because it, to, re, to be like a true sort of realist, absolutist, objectivist, what you have to believe is that, you know, if that killing is wrong is true in the same sense that two plus two equals four that if we got rid of all humans on earth, if we erased all of human history, that killing is wrong would still be true. 
And I don't believe that. Um, I think that's, that's crazy. But that's the position of probably the majority of philosophers, I think. Uh, the, the position of the majority of philosophers being that killing people is wrong if, if or killing yeah, is wrong. I'm, I'm using killing people is wrong as an example, but just that oh, right, right. moral truths have the same kind of truth value as like mathematical truths. But you think that that goes so far as to, I mean, I'm like, I think a lot of moral philosophers would probably appreciate that morality is tied with consciousness to some degree. So if there's no consciousness, there's, how can there be morality in any meaningful sense, right? I think the hard absolutist position is that these things exist independent of human will or consciousness. Hmm, okay. Um, okay. You know, a, a more middle of the road position is something like John Haidt's position, which would be that, oh, well, uh, morality is objective in the same sense that like, people have evolved to uh, like salt and sweet or something. They've evolved to like things like harm reduction and, and equality. And so if human evolution was different, then we would have a different set of morality. But to the extent like conditional on the way humans have evolved, then certain things are sort of objectively right or objectively wrong. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think that's at least viable. I just think that there's, so much more diversity that it makes it almost sort of practically infeasible because it's not going to be something like four or five taste buds. It's going to be just a massive amount of diversity. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, we're, we're running up against time here, but just for the last couple minutes, can you tell me about how you would hope um, to see the study of morality change over the coming years? Um, how would it take your theories and run with them? And what would the new directions be? You know, I mean, I think in some ways, the people who were kind of uh, on my side of the ledger of wanting to sort of integrate moral psychology back into sort of more general social and developmental psychology and cognitive psychology um, feel pretty good. We won. Like <laughs> over the last like 10, 15 years, like most of the most exciting work isn't really happening. Like most of the work that's exciting in morality isn't really happening in moral psychology. I don't think it's happening in other areas. So it's happening among people who study cooperation or it's happening, you know, among people who say like tight and loose cultures or it's happening among people who are saying intergroup relations, um, you know, that, that there has been this kind of understanding that, oh, well, all these, all these terrible things in the world, you know, ethnic cleansing, genocide, whatever, we used to the extent that moral psychology had anything to do with those things, it was to say, oh, well, they must be occurring through moral disengagement. Moral psychology has been turned off in those cases. And that's just not true anymore. Now people are really studying that stuff as, as oh, what? how are moral beliefs and values playing into making one group of people want to kill another group of people? And that, I think, has been like a giant sea change in a way where morality is much more integrated into social psychology. I think... You know, the future really is getting at the question you asked earlier about like, well, why is it that different groups in different places and different times have 
different different competing values. And there, I think, you know, it, that's where the real kind of future is in some of these cases is about kind of figuring out the ecologies that support different forms of morality. Um, you know, so like when I look at the John Haidt stuff about liberals and conservatives, um, you know, the big take home from that was that, oh, well, conservatives are just like moralizing a lot more stuff. And that was like broader than American conservatives and liberals. And that's where like, you know, this idea that, oh, there are cultures that just moralize more and other places that moralize less and kind of figuring out, well, why is that? Why is it that some people think that there's sort of fewer, more, there's more restrictions to get toward a good life versus other places that think there's fewer? Those are going to be the really cool basic questions. And then I think on the applied side, I think what we're seeing now is by erasing that border between morality and like social bias, we can now study many more applied problems than we used to. So, you know, the future is going to be figuring out like, well, what role is morality playing in sex, sexual harassment and in, you know, ethnic conflict and in, you know, violence more generally, which is, you know, what I've been doing the last couple of years. Mm -hmm. um, we used to just say that the only rule across all those things was just, oh, morality is turned off. And now we're actually going to be able to explore the different ways in which it's not the sort of breakdown of morality that's causing all these terrible things in the world, but actually the activation of our moral sense. Yeah. Well, I mean, and, and it sounded like when it comes to applying a lot of this stuff in like you're at MIT. So you know that there's a lot of sort of, we're running into a lot of dilemmas with the digital world on how to deal with morality. Like AI ethics is a huge issue. Um, and so I just can't help but think that we're going to have to really carefully think through, all right, how do we not be moral colonialists or whatever, but at the same time, if we're trying to teach AI and, and if we're trying to train AI sets, then to some degree we're reifying certain moralities and privileging certain moralities and social construals that others might not. And so even if we don't know what position to take, something's going to happen by default. Um, do you ever like think about that? Does that ever keep you up at night or anything? I mean, I think that's like, that's like a fascinating question. Um, you know, I, I mean, it's funny, like I tend to kind of, what excites me is actually like that default thing you're talking about, which is like, I kind of want to see what kinds of moralities the AIs come up with if, if we sort of leave them to their own devices as best as possible. Now it's still going to be the case that we'll eventually be able to trace back and figure out some sort of input we started that sort of set these things in motion. But to the extent that we can kind of leave them alone, it would be really cool if they start to come up with moral systems that we haven't even imagined. Mm, like, like their own kind of moralities emerging from their own sort of social controls, is that what you mean? Yeah, I mean, if it, if it turns out, you know, if it turns out the nature of the relations among, you know, these networks that are so highly interconnected with like, you know, you know, um, billions of interfaces or something, it becomes like a really radically different form of social relations than, than anything that's been possible before, then that should trigger a different form of morality 
<laughs> I feel like if, oh, sorry, what was that? It, it kind of. Oh, just, I just want to see that. Yeah. yeah, I feel like if Elon Musk was listening into this conversation, he would be like pounding his head into the wall and just like, no, that's exactly what we don't want. Um, I, I do think it would be fascinating to, to see, um, but it does seem like before that could happen, we're going to run into major problems with AI reflecting our own values back at us, right? Absolutely. But that's why I kind of want to skip past that part. Like I have no reason to trust, uh, you know, machines less than I trust human beings. <laughs> so. right right all right let's uh let's leave it off there thank you so much Tej. i really appreciate um your conversation today sure thank you Amber. thanks for listening if you have questions comments suggestions or requests contact me at www.moralsciencepodcast.com. The Moral Science Podcast is sponsored by ERA Inc., a research and design think tank that's reinventing how people interact with each other. Music throughout the program is My Crewbie by Kindswider and can be found at freemusicarchive.org.